is a new year. We are jumping back into our Hebrew series that we haven't been in for a few weeks. We got a little bit of catching up to do, but, but I, I'm so excited for this moment to, to be together, to gather around God's word, whether we're in the room or we're, we're at home. God has something good for us, even through a passage that actually is the, the sternest warning passage in the book of Hebrews. Like we're jumping right into the deep end, coming back into it in a new year. We're talking about endurance this morning, which is kind of a theme of the whole book of Hebrews. Someone say endurance. endurance. You knew it was coming. Okay. Um, endurance is, is pressing through, moving forward, pushing beyond even when things, when things are difficult. You don't need endurance when things are easy. You don't need endurance when it's like 75 degrees outside. You need endurance when it's negative whatever it is out there, right? Are you someone who has endurance? We're at a perfect time of year for a little test of your endurance. Like, how, how'd you do on last year's resolution? Maybe like me, you've stopped making resolutions because you're kind of tired of breaking them, right? I can't break a resolution if I don't make a resolution, amen? Uh, are you a person that, that has grit to get through difficult things? Whether it's a goal you set for yourself or whether it's just the suffering that comes with life. Endurance often falters, it falls short. When we, when we have a goal, something we're enduring for, and then something pops up and we kind of go, man, I don't know if that's worth it anymore. I, I kind of think this thing in front of me might be better. Right? It's that weight loss goal until you get pizza on a Friday night. You're like, I mean, pizza or broccoli, gang? Come on. It's the idea of like, I'm going to finally start showing up to church every week until it like snows and it's negative whatever. And I just, next week, I will start my resolution next week. We'll get there. Again, it's the Bible reading plan that you get partway through the Old Testament and you're like, I can't figure out who these names, these lists of names. I can't read it, these laws, whatever. And our endurance starts to falter when we go, I don't really know if that is worth it when I got this in front of me. Whether, whether that thing is, is a positive thing you want to jump at, like the pizza, or a negative thing, like just a hurdle that you can't quite seem to push past. And you've seen this show up in your life before. You've seen this show up at work. You've seen this show up in relationships, maybe even in marriage. Maybe you've even seen this show up in faith, and that's why you're, you're trying to commit to coming to church again. Even if it's not been in you, you there, there's someone you know who used to have a faith that was enduring, that was beautiful, that shone brightly, and they, they got dim, and, and they kind of got out of rhythm, and it's just not the same anymore. Again, maybe that's you. Maybe you're kind of looking at your walk with Jesus and the things that you used to be about and talk about, and you're kind of going, I don't, I don't know if I'm someone who endures. Our passage today is going to to poke at something that might be a sensitive spot in your heart and your life. It's actually going to poke at your view of God, the, the size of God in your heart and your mind. Our passage today might, might raise your guard a little bit when it comes to these things, but, but as we walk through it, we're actually going to see good news that comes once, once that place in us is exposed. We'll be in Hebrews chapter 10, Verses 26 through 39, you can start turning there now. And the question is, how do we have an enduring faith? When there's real suffering, when there are real obstacles, when, there, when there's stuff that comes along that could derail it. How do you have an enduring faith? 
And again, like I said, this is the sternest warning passage in the book of Hebrews. You ready? All right, let me give a recap of where we're at coming up to this, because it's been, again, it's been a minute since we've been in this book. Hebrews is, is written to this group of people that were Christians, they were believers, but they, they started to look back at the Old Testament, the Old Testament laws and rules and sacrifices and go, man, maybe I need to add some of that back into my faith. Like, I've accepted Jesus, but maybe I need to add something in there just, just to keep me going a little bit. Maybe to have more confidence or more hope before God. The author, we, we don't know who wrote the book, but, but the author takes pains over and over again to highlight different aspects of the Old Testament and go, listen to me, Jesus is the final prophet from God. He's the better Moses. He's the true rest your soul has been looking for. He's the great high priest that will never be out of the job. Jesus is better. And if you remember back a couple months ago, the, the passage right before this is this, this beautiful, confident passage about how our hope is fixed in Jesus. We can enter into the holy places by his blood. We have confidence. But the mood is going to shift a little bit. Look at verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment, a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. He's describing a person that would say, yes, I'm with Jesus. But really, the, the orientation, the direction of their life hasn't changed at all. The priority of their life hasn't changed at all. And so, so sin really isn't that big of a deal. Like, I got Jesus, right? Why does my obedience matter? Why does sin matter? I've got forgiveness anyway. Why, between now and eternity, why should I really care? Maybe when you hear the phrase sinning deliberately, you, you kind of get this uh-oh moment where you're like, I've done that. Like, I, I have sinned deliberately. Is that, is that me he's describing? He's talking about someone who, who again, would claim to be a Christian, but but doesn't really want their mindset to change. It's, it's willful, ongoing, unrepentant sin in their life. It's someone who's not concerned with maturity, not concerned with sanctification, not concerned with growth. If I got Jesus, why does it matter? Now again, this, this is not trying to crush you if you do see sin in your heart and you're trying to fight it. It's not trying to crush you if you are repenting and, and turning back to Jesus after you see sin in your heart, but but it is meant to confront you and challenge you if there's spots in your life where you say, yeah, I got Jesus, but don't touch this. Don't change this. Don't try to, to rewire this part about me. In fact, this whole first half of our passage is trying to confront us in our comfort. Maybe we've grown too comfortable with our pet sins our pet mindsets and heart postures. The second half of this passage is gonna give us some comfort, but, but first we gotta walk through the confrontation and, and take a hard look at where we're really at. He says, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment, a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. An adversary is an opponent. He's saying, if you try to claim Christ, but really don't want Jesus to be Lord, don't want him to rewire or redirect you, if you want your mindset to be the exact same as it's always been, you don't get to just add a little Jesus into the side. You're actually not with Jesus at all. You're an opponent. 
You're on the opposite team. Jesus doesn't just come along and play your game. You actually are, are against him. That, that's a scary place to be. To, to think that I can be with Jesus and add him on and actually be in complete opposition to who he is. He's going to give us an illustration, an example of this, and he's going to use something called a lesser to greater. He's like, okay, Hebrews, you love the Old Testament. I'm going to give you an Old Testament example and show how that pales in comparison to the reality of who God is. Look at verse 28. 28. Anyone who sets aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. There were laws in the Old Testament, again, maybe where you stopped in your reading plan, that said if you violate this law, then you deserve death. It would be better for you to die than continue polluting the community with this sin in your life. That's the Old Testament law. Look at the New Testament, verse 29. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, who's profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and outraged the spirit of grace? Maybe you've heard people say like, man, God is so angry in the Old Testament, but I love New Testament guy, right? He's so nice and soft and God is love. And then you come to passages like this and you're like, wait a second. Using words like punishment, he's profaned the covenant, he's outraged the spirit. Here's what he's describing. He's describing a person who is willfully pursuing sin, who is walking towards their sin. And as they're going, they meet Jesus and he is bloody and he is broken for sin and he's, he's nail scarred and he has a crown of thorns and they trip over him on the way over and like, oh Jesus, hey, didn't see you in my way but I'll take a little extra blood because I'll need that later, you know? Boop, 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 boop. Okay, great, I got some sin to do. It's ridiculous, right? It would be ridiculous to see Jesus bloody and broken there and just waltz all over him on your way to sin. It's crazy. That, that would be horrifying. That would make no sense at all if you, if you saw him for who he is. It would be ridiculous, and yet that's exactly, that's exactly what this person is doing. That's exactly what is going on in the heart and the mind of, of claiming Jesus, but really wanting him to have no part of changing your life. Verse 30, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. Every member of the Trinity is involved in this warning here. The Son who is bloody and being trampled underfoot, the Spirit of grace who is outraged at, at the ongoing rejection of conviction and holiness and, and the Father who will be the final judge. The Lord will judge, who does it say? His people. You're like, man, I went through the cold, I shoveled the car, I showed up to church, it's New Year's. Like, I want an encouraging message and you give me this stuff, right? Now listen to me, why is a warning like this given? Why, why warn someone like this? It's because the danger is real and the person warning loves you. I've got a toddler at home, and we got another one on the way, and I'm learning this kind of new parenting move. I don't know if you guys have heard of it. Uh, it's called natural consequences. You guys know this? Right? I, it's this thing where your kid is doing something dumb, and you tell them not to do something dumb, 
and they don't listen to you, but it, they're really not going to get hurt that much, right? And so you, you say, natural consequences, you'll learn. And you're going to, like, hug them later when they're crying, but you're going to let them make their dumb mistake first, right? And if they escape it without getting hurt or crying, you're like, yep, props to you. You got this one, buddy. Good, good work. Uh, but when, when they, like, try to climb over the baby gate and smash their face and, like, yeah, they come and you hug them. It's like, hey, buddy, natural consequences, Right? You, you can pull the natural consequences card when, when, when stuff's not going to go that wrong. But the warning kind of increases in severity when the danger gets more real. I've had the privilege of, of getting to walk alongside some of the, the pastors and elders here as they've stepped into some really serious situations in people's lives. One of them, I'm not going to give you too many details, but there, there was a man who was um, shipwrecking his marriage his family, his career with, with alcoholism. And it had been a pattern going on a long time and, and different people had jumped in. His connection group leaders loved him and, and kept pursuing him, kept pursuing him. And, and it hit this moment where it's like, hey, it, it doesn't seem like you, you actually want something different. Like you hate getting caught in this stuff and I know it's really complicated, but, but there doesn't seem to be a moment of you saying, hey, I'm actually gonna fight this. It always kind of seems to be someone else's fault. And I, I rode shotgun as a couple of the elders went to his house one night just to plead with him again. Just to beg him again, like, do you see what's going on? And moments like that, they suck. Like, that's not a fun conversation to be in. It's not a fun moment to smell the vomit and see the pee stains on the couch and, and to look in someone's eyes and, and, and wonder, can you even understand me right now? And as we're sharing the gospel again and pleading with him, like, look at what's going on. Please, let us be community for you. We just, we paused the conversation and said, hey, you don't want this. We don't, we don't want to have to have these moments. Why do you think we're here? And even though he wasn't fully sober, he could, he could say, it's because you love me. Yeah. The only reason we would do this is because we love you. The only reason God would give a warning like this is because he loves us, because the danger is real. It is a dangerous thing to live this out. There are two things going on in this passage, two things that this first half of our passage is supposed to do in us. The first one is actually it's supposed to unsettle you a little bit if you've been claiming to be a Christian but never really taken seriously what that means. Genuinely, guys, it, it might actually be better for you to not call yourself a Christian if all you want is to kind of add Jesus in as a little bit of fire insurance and go about your way. Like, it, it would be a better thing for you to not pretend you're in this kingdom of God thing when really you want Jesus to kind of ride shotgun in your kingdom. There, there's a view that this first half of our passage is highlighting that's kind of an idea of cheap grace. Ah, there's enough grace. I'll kind of add some on. I can do whatever I want. I'll get forgiveness later. And maybe that's been your only experience of Christianity in church. Like maybe you grew up and that was the norm, but our, our passage is trying to confront that head on and go, that is not it. We don't just trample over Jesus and get a little extra blood on the way. We're going to unpack that, that mindset more later on in the message. But, but one of the things our, our passage is supposed to do is unsettle you a little bit if you find yourself there. Another thing it's supposed to do actually is, is it's supposed to prick your heart. 
When you hear like trampling underfoot the son of God, some of what it's supposed to do in you is go, no, Jesus, like he died for me. He loves me. He, he's the one that sacrificed himself for me. I, I don't want that. I would never do that. Or outraging the spirit of grace in, inside supposed to go, no. Like the spirit is the one who, who counsels me and comforts me and convicts me. He makes the word alive to me and Jesus beautiful. No, I don't want that. I don't want to be that. Or, or the father sitting in judgment, but he's the one that ran out to greet me when I came home. I was the lost sheep and he came for me. I, I don't want to treat him like that. Our, our passage is supposed to, to both confront you if you find yourself having played the game of Christianity and never taken it seriously. But also, actually, in the heart of a believer, it's supposed to woo you away from this dangerous road. It's supposed to, in your heart of hearts, look at Jesus again and go, yes, I love him and I don't want to live that life. It's a warning for you to invite you to the path of life. Now again, this, this first half of our passage is, is a stern warning and serious, but the, the author of Hebrews, he's gonna go somewhere more encouraging here, okay? This is why you showed up today, I get it. Somewhere actually encouraging based on his relationship with, with the people he's writing to. Look at verse 32, he says, but recall the former days. Recall the time together, the time that we got to spend together. He had lived with them and, and done life alongside them. He says, after you were enlightened, meaning after you met Jesus, after you saw the light of the gospel, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. You had compassion on those in prison. You joyfully accepted the plunder of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. He's looking at them and he's going, I've, I've seen your life. I've seen how you've lived and, and listen, I'm not worried about that first thing for you because I've seen your love for Jesus. Look at how he describes them. He says, you endured sufferings. Walking with Jesus involves suffering, man. If our savior died, if he said, pick up your cross and follow me, that's the life he's inviting us into this side of eternity. But he's saying, Hebrews, the, the people here, man, you were exposed to reproach and affliction. What happened was when you accepted Jesus, people started to look at you differently. You lost friends. You lost family. You lost your career, maybe. You had compassion on those in prison. You had joy when people took your stuff. You were treated horribly, and what came out of you was joy and hope and life and encouragement for other people. Man, I've seen your life and every evidence in it is that you love Jesus and you've been transformed by him. You had a better possession. Like they could take your stuff away from you, but you, you looked at that and you said, yeah, but I know what's coming. I know Jesus has an inheritance for me that will never spoil and never fade. They, they shamed you publicly and you said, yeah, that, that hurts. But you know what? At the end of the day, I know the one that loves me and approves of me is Jesus. He's got me. He died for me. What's the worst you can do? Veritas, I, I love coming across passages like this because I've seen so many times where you've lived this out. Some of you have gotten baptized, publicly identifying with Jesus, even when that meant your family rejected you. They couldn't understand why you would do this. They, they maybe didn't even show up because they didn't, want, they didn't want to participate in you declaring your love for Jesus. But you did it with joy. 
Man, many of you are everyday missionaries sharing the gospel in your workplace, even though it's, it's complicated and it's tricky to figure out how you do that and, and people look at you differently, but, but you look at the gospel and you go, Jesus is worth it, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give it my best. My, my weak efforts, I'm still gonna give my best and try to talk about what he's done in my life. Many of you have fought to maintain joy in an angry culture in an angry time and you shine. You, you look different to the world around because your hope is not fixed on, on pol- politics or policies or whatever, but on an enduring kingdom to come. You have joy that doesn't fade with the political cycle. Veritas, I, I love this passage because I've seen so many of you live this out. Taking your maturity seriously, taking your godliness seriously, even when it costs you. He's saying because of this, Because of that reality, because of the evidence of what Jesus has done, look at verse 35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. Don't throw away your confidence. He's looking at kind of the the theme of the whole book of Hebrews and even the passage right before, this confidence in Christ versus confidence in, in your own hard work, your own efforts. See, they they had confidence in Jesus that led to a transformed life, but along the way. What felt like a small change began to have big consequences. They moved from confidence in Jesus to trying to have confidence in a transformed life. Do you see that? Confidence in Jesus leads to a transformed life, but then if you begin to shift and try to have confidence in a transformed life, you begin to experience less of the power of God to actually be transformed. They were trying to have confidence that they could be good enough holy enough, righteous enough, follow enough of the laws and the festivals and the rituals and the rest days to actually have more confidence before God. But if you, if you move away from confidence in Jesus and his finished work, the best you've got is yourself. Like the best you've got is your, your own effort and that is nothing compared to a holy God. Again, it's kind of this theme of the first chunk of the book of Hebrews, the idea of works righteousness, If I can work hard enough, my rightness with God will be protected or shored up or topped up. Like my relationship with God, yeah, Jesus is important, but at the end of the day, I got to keep myself there. I've got to keep myself in his good graces. I got to keep myself in his love. He's saying, no, don't throw away your confidence because there's great reward in confidence in Jesus. And if you throw away that confidence, you end up throwing away your reward. The best you can do for your hard work and best effort is throw away everything Jesus won for you. If you try to build a confidence based on you, it'll never measure up. We've seen this idea of of cheap grace in the first half and then this idea of works righteousness in the second. We're gonna diagnose those in a minute, but let's, let's finish his encouragement, his challenge to us. 36, for you have need of endurance. So when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. You need endurance because suffering is coming. Being a Christian is not easy. Anyone here feel like they need endurance? Is that just me? Right, it's like day two of the new year, and I'm like, all right, how many more? When is Christmas again? Right, like, this is hard. Like, we need endurance. And he's saying, God has that kind of endurance for you if you don't shift from your confidence in him. When you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. God has promised incredible things to his people. 
He's promised incredible rest and joy and satisfaction to his people if we endure to the end. Verse 37, for yet a little while and the coming, the coming one will come and will not delay. Jesus is coming back. Just like he promised to die and raise to life and he did it, he promised that he would rise and come back. And he ascended to heaven and he is coming back. He's not, he's not delaying. He's not slow. He didn't forget about us. He's patient. But my righteous one shall live by faith and if he shrinks back, my soul will have no pleasure in him. It's not how you begin this journey of faith. It's not how fast you come out of the gate. It's about reaching the tape at the end, reaching the finish line. It's about that final day, not just the first day, but waiting to the end where we see him face to face. But he finishes with confidence and with hope. Verse 39, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. He's talking to his audience and saying, this is who you are. This is the confidence I have. I've seen who you are and what you're like. Listen to me. You're going to preserve your souls. That final day, everything you've been putting your hope and confidence for in Jesus, God's promises will come through for you. Hold on to the end. Endure. Press forward whatever comes. Here's what's going on in our passage. There are two different heart issues, two different ditches that we can fall into that actually have the same root. They have a surprising similar, um, similar starting point, cheap grace and works righteousness. Cheap grace, like he described at the beginning, is, is a minimizing of God's holiness. It's essentially saying sin's not that big of a deal, right? Yeah, I mean... Jesus saved me, there's enough grace for that, I can kind of go on and do whatever I want and not really have to change. I don't really have to, to be motivated in my disciplines or my, my sanctification, my holiness, my maturity. Why is that such a big deal? It's reducing God's holiness down so that sin really is manageable. Not something you have to kill or fight, but yeah, we can kind of live with this. Can you see how that's a, a, a tiny view of God? Can you see how that's a small view of the cross? Like, if your sin is not that big of a deal, then Jesus dying for it is horrifying. Jesus dying for it, if, if it's just kind of not that big of a deal, is, is terrible. But your sin is a big deal to a holy God. Listen to me, if, if you find yourself a little bit allergic to talk of obedience, maybe... Maybe this is a problem going on in your heart. Like if, when, when we talk about application in church or, or in connection group, if you kind of, if your guard goes up a little bit, like, hey, don't go there, don't talk about that. Maybe you've got some cheap grace stuff going on in your heart of hearts. And you might have good theological language to kind of put up a smoke screen, like, well, I'm not a legalist, right? I'm not those legalists that have to read their Bibles, but really, at the end of the day, your lack of concern for sanctification, for holiness, for growth, might be exposing the fact that you have a small view of God, trying to fit the king of the universe actually into your kingdom. You can get a little fire insurance whenever you need it. Take a little grace, dab it on, and keep going on your merry way. And he's saying if, if cheap grace is the operating system of your heart, you have shrunk what God looks like and you'll be very surprised when you meet him face to face at the end. 
It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. But remember, this warning is because the danger is real and the one warning you loves you. He loves you enough to actually try to call you out and help you understand, no, 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 don't live with a small view of God. That is not good news. In fact, a faith operating off of a small view of God, that's no, that's no place for endurance. Really, at the end of the day, that's not worth it. And no wonder you don't experience power to share the gospel. No wonder you don't experience power to try to grow in maturity. No wonder worship or reading your Bible, let's face it, isn't really that joyful. Because you've got a small view of God. What about works righteousness? The, the works righteousness person might look more spiritual on the surface. They might be doing more of the right things, right? They're reading their Bible and showing up to church and connection and even classes. Like, I'm doing all this stuff. But again, the operating system of their heart has gotten rewired the wrong direction. They've begun to shift confidence from Jesus to Jesus plus my hard work. Yeah, yeah, Jesus, you're important, but really at the end of the day, it comes down to if I've done enough, if I've been good enough, if I've accomplished enough. And maybe what you're living in is, is a frustrating, despairing Christianity because you feel like you can never measure up. Let me ask you this. Do you feel like, do you feel like God loves you more on your good days than your bad days? Like, do you feel like your, your disciplines, man, I was reading my Bible, I, I tried to share the gospel, like, God must really be happy with me today. And again, you've got good theological answers, you're like, no, God's love for me is steady. I get it. But does God like you less on your bad days? Like, does God want to be around you less or, or listen to your prayers less or, or work through you for his kingdom less when you haven't really been measuring up? That's the ditch I kind of find my heart falling into. Like even preparing a message like this, I'm kind of like, all right, Lord, I'm trying really hard. Are you going to bless me? Are you going to use it? It's this thing where the confidence shifts from the finished work of Jesus to, hey, I've been trying really hard. Are you, are you happy with me now? I've been trying really hard. Am I good enough for you now? But listen to me, friends, that is also a small view of God. Do you think the holy, sovereign, powerful, gracious, merciful, loving God of the universe is impressed with you having quiet times? Is he impressed with your church attendance? Now, showing up to church is really important and, and having spiritual rhythms is very important for so many reasons, but, but not for trying to impress God. At the end of the day, if you have a God that can be impressed by your hard work, you have a small God where his holiness is manageable, or a small view of your sin, where your sin is manageable. Both the, the cheap grace and the works righteousness, both of them have the same root issue. They have a small view of God. But here's the answer. Here's the, the medicine that attacks both cancers to our soul. It's the good news of the gospel. And the good news begins with the fact that you are not good enough. You're not. You're a sinner. Happy 2022. Like there's sin in your heart and your life that you can't work hard enough to eradicate and it matters to a holy God. This God created you. He's your loving creator. He's your supreme authority and he is your final judge. That's not just an Old Testament idea. It shows up all throughout the New Testament too. Your sin is a big deal and it breaks your relationship with God. 
You were designed to be in relationship with the God of the universe where you glorify him and worship him and enjoy him. In fact, you were designed for it. That's the place that will find the the deepest satisfaction of the longings of your heart. No wonder the rest of life isn't satisfying you. You don't have that relationship right. And God did what you could never do on your own. What you could never do by working hard enough or by pretending your sin doesn't matter, he actually answered your sin problem and your relationship problem. What Jesus did is he, he came and lived a perfect life. He earned relationship with God. He walked the way that you should have walked. And he actually took the punishment that, that you should pay. He says, listen, I'll, I'll trade you. I'll give you mine if you give me yours. My, my righteousness, my rightness before God, my relationship with God for your punishment, I'll trade you. And his death on the cross and victorious resurrection is proof that he paid it and there's nothing left to pay. The the cross is the ultimate proof that God's holiness is a big deal, that your sin is a big deal and our God is good enough and gracious enough and merciful enough and loving enough to actually solve that problem. The gospel is the answer to both issues we run into. The gospel is is the root and source of a big view of God. Let me put it this way. Maintaining a big view of God motivates enduring faith. The Christian life is really walking through day after day, year after year, trial after trial, and seeing more clearly how holy God is, more clearly how sinful I am, and how the cross fills that gap. So, so what do you need to do with this? What do you need to do with this warning, but also this encouragement? I think one thing you need to do is, is confess a small view of God. Like maybe, in fact, you've actually tried to do Christianity with a broken heart, a broken operating system the entire time. Like maybe you've never actually experienced that good news of the gospel. You've only tried to live in cheap grace or works righteousness. Would you confess that to God? Would you confess to God how you've minimized him? How you've minimized his holiness in your sin? Would you talk to him about that? And by faith, would you accept the good news that you're not good enough, but we have a savior that has accomplished that for us? Maybe you you are a Christian today, but you see the bend in your heart towards one or the other ditch. Would you confess that to community? Would you arm the people around you with that knowledge so that you're not just dealing with the fruit, but you're actually going to the root of your sin so they can preach the gospel more more specifically, more incisively into that heart issue and preach a big view of God to you? I think for all of us, what if we committed to a big view of God this year? Where you, you got a Bible reading plan and you read it not to figure out what it says about you first, but what it says about God where you grew a big view of God and you showed up to worship, not trying to figure out if I like those songs or if Nils' jeans are too tight or whatever, but, but if you let those songs actually point you to this big God. What if you got around people that had a big view of God so that when you talked about him, it wasn't just how he fit into your plans, but how good he is and how he's actually driving you more to himself. What would it look like in your life if you committed to growing a big view of God in 2022? I think that would change how you go through suffering. 
I think you would find a bigger endurance because the things in front of you wouldn't be more appealing than that big God that you're enduring for. I think that would change the way you go about disciplines and rhythms because it's no longer about if you're feeling it or how it makes you feel today. It's about that incredible God that promised to show up when we pray to him, when we read his word, when we worship with his people. I think you'd find a new power to endure A new strength to reach that finish line because you know the God that is standing there with good promises and an incredible inheritance for you. Veritas, this year, let us commit together to be a people that grow in our view of God because maintaining a big view of God motivates enduring faith. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this warning. Thank you for the ways that you want to, to poke at and, and expose where our hearts have tried to, to put confidence in something other than you. And Spirit, I pray even as we, as we process and digest this passage that you would expose where we've made a God of the universe something we can manage, something smaller than, than what you really are. And would you give us an incredible joy and hope when we look at the good news of the gospel, Jesus, what you've accomplished Would you rewire our hearts with confidence and joy in who you are and what you've done as we endure to the end? We pray in your name. Amen.